Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and this is our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, I'm here today with Professor Zilch. Uh, that is a name of a 1964 ca- character from DC Comics' Doom Patrol. Uh, Professor Zilch. Uh, that, that, is, that is all the info I have on him. <laughs> 1964 character from DC Comics, Doom Patrol. Now, do you know that they DC Comics has remade Doom Patrol into a TV series? I did not. Okay. I barely know that there is a DC Comics. All right. Well, well that's, that's uh, the Batman Superman. Uh, that is. Yeah. So the other day I was in third grade and they were asking me, which is your favorite DC superhero? And I told them, you know, you know, Batman, Superman. And they said, what about Spider-Man? I said, I'm sorry, that's Marvel. And so I had to explain them the whole two universes. So I, I can do the same thing with you sometime. MCU and DCU. Yes. Um, right. Uh, Did I throw you off? No, no, okay. not at all. Uh, it's, we are covering First Timothy, uh, the last chapter, First Timothy 6, and then we'll jump to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, and cover three chapters of Titus. So, uh, we begin with uh, instruction that Paul gives about slaves. And I think that it's probably a good point to remind people that uh, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were a very different kind of a thing than slaves as we would think of them in America, in the Deep South, um, in the 18 or 17 or 1600s. Um, There... It is true that there were types of slavery in the ancient Roman world that uh, treated their uh, slaves as property or as something less than human, uh, which you might think of with with the slavery in America. But uh, the fact is that a lot of times slavery was um, simply a way that you would go into debt or you would pay off a debt. Uh, Today, we often apply the passages from the Bible that talk about slaves to employers. And we say that uh, your, your boss is an authority figure over you. You have to do what uh, she or he says uh, if you want to make money. And if you, if you don't want to do what they say, that's fine, but then you don't get money or you don't get paid. Um, and uh, that's kind of a maybe a better way to think of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, a lot of times you had slaves who were better educated than their masters. The, in other words, they had a more uh, thorough instruction and were more uh, classically trained than the people who were paying them their salary. Uh, and that didn't change the status. Uh, and so just keep things like that in mind as you read these words from First Timothy 6. Yeah, and with that, uh, one of the things I... Uh I learned as I was studying on this chapter is slavery was common in the Roman Empire. Perhaps one third of the population was comprised of slaves. Uh, And so you couldn't uh, very well have, like you said, Jeremy, a third of the population, like we think of slavery in chains, like the African-Americans before the Civil War. And it's important for us to understand, too, that the New Testament does not endorse the institution of slavery. It just shows how Christians are to operate on both sides of the spectrum, if you're a slave owner and if you are the slave. And for that, we can look at uh, the book, Paul's letter to the slave Philemon. And like you said, the, too, he was this Philemon, the owner of the oh, slave. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you might think, well, there's so many passages where... The New Testament tells the slaves to submit themselves to their masters. Uh, that's not really endorsing the the slavery as an institution. It's simply saying what Scripture says all over the place that our faith is not about overthrowing the system that is in place. That our our home is in heaven. Uh, we don't need to make a, a name for ourselves as uh, uh, rabble rousers. Or, or uh, it would be very easy for people who are finding out about this Christian religion for the very first time, uh, God doesn't want anybody to think that his religion is about um, overthrowing the the system that is in place uh, for governing. Yeah, it's the same way that Moses and later on Jesus quoting Moses did not endorse divorce or God did not endorse polygamy. He used what was already there. 
And that's what. Then there's commentary then on that, and that's and, what and, and regulate. We, we, we're not going to get rid of it necessarily, but not not endorse it either. And as long as we have to do it, let's regulate it. Right. And like you said, today in the 21st century, we can apply these words to us as. Uh, employers and employees that as employees we're going to be respectful to those who are uh, our our employers uh, we're going to serve them better we're going to uh, allow them to benefit from our good service as we act as believers in their employ I wonder uh, what your thoughts would be when it uh, Paul talks in the next section in verses three and following all the way down to verse 10. Uh, where he's talking about those who have depraved minds, or he's really talking about false teachers again. And funny how much time Paul spends pointing out false teachers. You might think today, when you listen to Christian Christian uh, type preaching in uh, on TV or on the radio, that um, well, maybe I'm thinking more of like the megachurch or non-denominational styles of preaching. Uh, you don't hear much about. Well, there's false teachers out there, and uh, Paul himself spends a lot of time talking about it. But I guess what what I maybe struggle with, or you could help me uh, iron out a little bit, is the term in verse four, battles over words, because um, the the fact is that I think a lot of times we try very hard and are very specific about the choice of words that we make um, when we're when we're sharing God's word with people. Uh, and, and here Paul is saying, let's not start battles over words, or whoever does start battles over words has a depraved mind. Um, did, did you have any thoughts about that in particular, or the whole section in general? No. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I didn't really uh, look uh, in depth at that phrase for controversies and battles over words. I don't have anything in my notes on that either. either. I think that's... Uh, an interesting phrase I'll have to study more on. But I did notice, because you pointed this out the last time, is Paul says in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different, uh, teaches different doctrines, and again, plural. Mm-hmm. And you said yeah. that last week, that whenever God t- talks through his apostles about doctrines, that's plural, that it's false teachings. And then later on, I think it's in Titus, he talks about doctrine, mm. singular, and that's the truth. And... I think a big thing for us is we do want to be aware of these false doctrines. We want to uh, make our people aware of them, but then we want to focus more on the godly teaching. Uh, I guess that would be my my big thing there is uh, make people aware of it. Uh, For example, when I'm teaching my adult confirmation class, whether it's to members or or non-members, I'm going to say, here is the truth of what God's word says. Now, here are some falsehoods, that, and uh, but we're going to focus mainly on the truths. I don't know where you want to go with that. Well, and I think you might struggle with that thought of one doctrine versus plural doctrines. And uh, you might think, well, there's there are Ten Commandments, and there are three articles in the Creed, and there are two sacraments, and uh, there's all kinds of plurality within God's word. So what are we supposed to do with that? And I think the next line after the different doctrines tells you uh, when you want to talk about the more than one within Jesus' teaching, use the word words. Uh, devote, devote yourself to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or last time I used the word articles, that's another way to say it, different facets of the one true doctrine. Uh, and I was thinking about um, uh, that battle over wor- battles over words, and it came to me uh, while, while you were talking that uh, I think a good example of this would be when um, I got to Kansas, the congregation had had experience with a pastor who was not, he was not the called full-time pastor. He was actually a retired pastor. He wasn't retired. He had to resign the ministry. And uh, one of the things, th- th- this was years before I got there that this happened, but uh, he, would, he would actually make trouble for the full-time pastor uh, when it came to uh, especially the issue of the King James Version, and that uh, mm. y- transitioning over from the King James Bible to anything else was suspicious, and that's kind of the message he was proclaiming. And one of the things that he would do would be to point out in, uh, I think it's 
Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, um, uh, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, that, that passage, had been, it, it was in the King James Version, persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. And he had, he had kind of poured his uh, song and dance routine into the people's ears so that um, they, they were thinking that uh, when the King James Version had been discarded and this uh, new word had been put in place, uh, convinced instead of persuaded, that it somehow didn't pack as much punch oh what the Apostle Paul was saying. And uh, uh, th- th- there, were, there, were, there was one guy in particular that was really kind of uh, sold on this tie. He was persuaded <laughs> on this and, um, and still would talk about it. And uh, I think that would be a good example of controversies and battling over words that you're you're really just making trouble and unsettling the people of God. Yeah, and that comes what what you were saying comes to mind of we just had this discussion with some of our leaders of the two churches here in Racine of Water of Life and First Evan that operate our Wisconsin Lutheran School as we were talking about uh, implementing the EHV, the Evangelical Heritage Version, in our school. So right now, we're bringing it in in the third grade when we give the third graders uh, an EHV Bible, and we pay for that. And uh, one one of the councilmen from one of the churches was really pushing hard that we should... do away with the NIV 11. He's, he said, he quoted all these uh, bad reviews of the NIV 11 and that we should right away get to the EHV. And what we really came down in talking with it, about it with the WS administration and the pastors is, like you said, I think we're causing a controversy here that doesn't need to be a controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some issues and grave ones with the NIV 11, but we also wanted to be aware that by just getting rid of it in our school, we were kind of saying uh, by our actions that the EHV is a better translation Mm -hmm. and maybe it's a sanctified version and that anyone that uses the NIV 11 isn't... Well, what what do you do as soon as you uh, say that? Now, all of a sudden, you've raised a fascination or, or you've, you've raised a level of mystery with the NIV. If you forbid it, now, now suddenly people are going to start saying, oh, what's in there? They're trying, to, they're trying to hide something. They're trying to keep it away from me. I want to dig in and find out more. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way. It's like Martin Luther thought the best way to inoculate Christians against the Quran was to let them read the Quran. <laughs> yeah. and, th- and to this man's credit, though he didn't agree with us, he didn't stand opposed either is when the vote was taken, we're going to do what we've been doing for implementing the EHV. You know, he, he may have voted no or not voted, but he didn't make trouble afterwards. That was the decision, and let's go on with it. I think the uh, rest of the chapter has a lot of great stuff in it. Uh, maybe if we would just touch on one more, it would be the... Um, uh, there's a lot of talk about riches and material wealth, uh, so I don't know if you had anything in particular you wanted to uh, discuss there, but uh, you've got that very important passage um, in verse 10 that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, uh, of, of evils. And uh, of course, it doesn't say money is root of all evil, but the love of money. Uh, I, did you I want to touch on that topic at all? Well, just uh, to bring it verse 6 and verse 8 in, uh, as background of for the love of money, but godliness with contentment is great gain, he says in verse 6. But if we have food and clothing, and the Greek there can mean covering. So it can mean clothes, or it could mean your house. And that reminded me of what we state in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. You know, daily bread includes everything that we need for our bodily welfare, such as food and drink, clothing and shoes, house and home, land and cattle, money and goods, a godly spouse, godly children, godly workers, godly and faithful leaders, good government, good weather, peace and order, health, a good name, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. And as long as God provides us with those things that we need, then we're not going to be attracted by the things that we want, which which can be the love of money or home or a vehicle or voca- vacations and so forth. Mm. Um, 
Is there anything else in chapter in uh, First Timothy that you wanted to discuss? And just at the end, there were a talk where Paul encourages Timothy and thereby us too of fighting the good fight. You know, how do we fight the good fight? Well, we need to testify to our faith, and we need to be ready when Jesus comes again. Uh, that means we need to hold on firmly to the message of salvation and not become involved in aimless human arguments like he talks about earlier. Uh, but it also says uh, that we don't give up. We continue to battle against evil, false teaching, and sin. I had a conversation with someone today after my Revelation Bible study. I had a conversation with a young person who's in the military. And the one person today may have to uh, miss out on some of the things in the employment. Uh, this young soldier may, may not be commissioned because they're not willing to go through with some things. And it may cost them money. And I told both of them that you cannot change the world by being comfortable. You know, the only way you can change the world is by getting up off the sofa. And that may cost you things. It may cost you family. It may cost you your, your job. It may co- cost you a commission. It may cost you uh, money. Uh, we, need, you know, we don't change things by sitting on our couches watching Netflix and playing on our phones. You know, that's not fighting the good fight. And I think a lot of times this happens with us as Christians too, that we fight a good fight and then we go, oh, that was a good job. We pat ourselves on the back. And then we go sit on the sofa. Mm. But the devil doesn't do that. He may say, well, you, you won that battle, but he keeps on going. We think, oh, that was good enough. And then the devil gains territory. And that's where I would just encourage everyone who's listening is fight the good fight, not in the realm of politics and government and things like that, but in the realm of our culture. And the only way to change our culture is by fighting the good fight of sharing the gospel over and over and over again. That's what I have. So uh, that moves us on to Titus, the book of Titus. Uh, Titus was kind of like Timothy. He was, um, he was a pastor. He certainly was a, a shepherd of God's people. But again, I, I would say something that we said at the beginning of 1 Timothy, you might think of him more like an overseer or bishop of other pastors. That, that uh, The way Paul talks about it, he wants Titus and Timothy to, to work their way through their circuit, so to speak, or to oversee uh, their region of churches that have been established and help out the pastors of those individual churches on a larger scale level. Um, Titus seemed to have a specific area of oversight in Crete, and uh, it, Paul makes a couple of references to Crete. Uh, that was a, a pretty rough uh pretty rough neighborhood, uh, you might say. Because um, we still use the term Cretans today. To, to mean people that are uh, degenerate or um, uh, ill-mannered in their, in their living and uh, illegal in their dealings with people. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, we're going to come across a quote where uh, it talks about Cretans always telling lies. That's, that's here. In, oh, I see that in chapter one here. Um, so uh, the one thing that I'm going to probably keep, I, I always kind of have a theme that one time it was Bach and the St. Matthew Passion. Uh, last time it was the doctrine versus doctrines. This time, uh, my theme for Titus that I always like to focus on is um, health. And uh, there's a lot of use of the word healthful or, or healthy uh, in the sense that uh, of sound, or maybe I, I forget what, what word the EHV uses here, but um, something that's reliable, and it's talking about doctrine. And uh, I, I was taught uh, that the way that you talk about the status of a person is a person can be healthy, and it is food. I think I'm getting this right. It's food. You shouldn't really say healthy food. You should say food is healthful. Uh, it gives health to you. It's full of health and it gives it to you. And that makes you healthy. Uh, either way that you want to think about it, uh, this, is, this is kind of a theme in Titus that uh, Paul says, what you teach Titus or what you, should, what you have your pastors teach to the people in the pews is it needs to be health giving uh, in nature. Right. You're talking about chapter two, verse one, where he talks about uh, speak about what is appropriate for sound doctrine. 
and the Greek there for sound is correct, free from error, healthy. So there you go. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, just like with Timothy, Paul calls Titus a child in the common faith. And he views this pastor as a spiritual child, just like Timothy was. Uh, so the other week, I was talking to one of our Shoreland students from Water of Life that was sitting outside of the high school, and I was talking to him, and then he brought up uh, the podcast, and he said, Jeremy, that we need to folk, we need to mention Star Wars more. So okay. that, was from, that was from one of our high schoolers, so I was glad that he was listening to the podcast. There you go. Yeah, sure. And this young man had gone, gone on the Martin Luther College trip with four other students from our school, which is pretty cool because we already have three students there and a possibility of a number more that are going. And this young man wants to be a pastor. And his mom had messaged me and said, Pastor, please tell him that he doesn't have to wear a tie all the time and uh, that he can wear jeans once in a while because you wore a tie on the trip. And I said, well, I'm not the one to talk to him about that because when I was in high school and I knew I wanted to be a pastor, I wore a tie too. So he's my spiritual child in the faith and I'm going to keep encouraging him, not necessarily wear ties in high school, but to keep on uh, in the ministry. Uh, I, I'm going to be eager to find out who that is uh, after we get done recording. Uh, but uh, I, if he's at Shoreland, then I probably see him quite a bit, and uh, I'm happy to. He might be the only one that wears a tie. Encourage, encourage, uh, encourage him to become a pastor as well. Um, I, I found that passage that I kind of glanced at earlier uh, in uh, verse. 12, uh, one of their own prophets, this is talking about the people on the island of Crete, uh, and it says, one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, and so he, th this is a, a spokesman for the island of Crete <laughs> saying that the, the, the people on Crete are, are not nice people. They're, uh, they're going to deceive you. And uh, Paul says this testimony is true. For this reason, correct them sharply so they may be sound in the faith. So that's, that's uh, another example of that sound in the faith or being, having a healthy spirit, a healthy soul. Uh, and I think what's interesting about that is that happens with being corrected sharply. Um, that uh, I, I'm not very good at that, especially on the high school campus. I, actually, I, there have been times when I've... Uh, disciplined or, or spoken uh, sharply to students, but uh, a lot of the times I, th I think that maybe I have a little reputation uh, of perhaps being a pushover when it comes to classroom management, uh, and maybe I need to take some advice from Paul here and do more sharp correcting. Yeah, and with the correcting, though, you're, you're not talking about false doctrine, I don't think, at, at the high school. Uh, but this is a very real temptation for us in our present culture, just like it was in Paul's day. Satan tempts us to consider false teachings as benign. It's no big deal. Or maybe in our culture we can just divorce ourselves away from them by uh, sh shielding our kids with homeschooling or uh, Lutheran elementary school and Lutheran high school, which are all great. And I would encourage you, if you can do that, to do that. But still, no. Yeah, I was going to say, we homeschooled. Yeah, and we did too. But knowing that it's still going on in our culture, just pulling our kids out of those things may uh, protect our children, but the false teachings are still out there and we need to do what we can to correct people. And sometimes that may be, uh, may sound harsh in our, in our present age. Confrontational. Yeah, yeah, confrontational. And that's the thing I was going to ask you, is it okay for us as pastors and teachers and Christians to be confrontational? Uh, I think it, at some point it, it becomes unloving not to be yeah. confrontational. Uh, actually, uh, my wife was just talking about, uh, sorry for mentioning you, uh, my wife was just talking about how uh, if, if you're in a classroom and you have to uh, set down a certain rule, uh, like you can't be taking out your phone during the uh, class time and playing on your phone in class, uh, if you don't enforce that rule, then your words are meaningless. Yeah. 
uh, everything you say becomes a little more weak, a little a little more meaningless uh, if you don't enforce it. And uh, and if you enforce it, though, that does mean you have to be confrontational. Yep. Uh, and and so I think it, it's a good way to think of it as I, I love this kid enough or I love this person enough that I'm going to say something. Yeah. And a former principal we had, he taught me this, and I'm sure he taught his teachers this in the school, in that he said, you have to start out strong with a discipline. Because if you start out weak, saying, well, maybe they'll catch on later on, they never will. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you have to, you'll never gain that strength back. Mm-hmm. You have to start out strong uh, and correct sharply. And then maybe later on, as they get the idea, then you can soften things up. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, being sinful nature, you know, people are all... Uh, people, our students, uh, are always going to take advantage of us if we're soft. And so we have to come out strong. And there I think of one of your teachers at Shoreland. He told me this a number of years ago. Maybe he was new back then, but he told his class the first day, they're starting with a C. And they go, mm-hmm. what? A C? Uh, and we, we start with an A. And he goes, but you have to earn an A. You know, average is a C. And you can go down or you can go up. You have to earn your way up to a good grade. Now, I'm sure he didn't really do that, but I thought it was an interesting concept that pe- that students think that they can just start with a 100% and then work their way down. And and his concept was, no, you're down. you got to work your way up. In in God's grade book, you get into heaven by grace alone. In in, in my grade book, you got to earn an A. I think he said something <laughs> like that, too. Um, how... How do you explain? I, I, we we like to throw each other curveballs, don't we? Yeah, I just put my notes away for this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't do that, um, because this is this is kind of a tough little nut to crack here. Uh, verse fifteen: All things are pure to those who are pure, and and man, there is just if the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that to Titus, and he did, then I don't see a, a whole lot that is excluded from all. All things are pure. To those who are pure, um, and uh, that that is all encompassing. Uh, and uh, how can how can he say something so drastic as that? All things are all things are pure to those who are pure. Um, I, yeah, well, go ahead. I can just read what I have in my notes on this. So, uh, what does that verse mean? In uh, verse fifteen, believers in Jesus understand God's will. They have the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. So they grow in faith and knowledge. Also, we need to think of the Judaizers here. They're the ones who are forbidding eating certain foods. So Paul is saying that those who are pure can eat all things because all food is pure. On the other hand, when, quote, both their minds and consciences are corrupted, also in verse 15, when there's no faith in the purifying power of Jesus Christ, then nothing's pure. So every thought leads away from God and in the direction of self-righteousness. Every act of eating and drinking and every act of worship is then impure in God's eyes. So I wonder if uh, maybe this would be a good way to apply it. Um, I grew up in a household where uh, we were not allowed to uh, watch The Simpsons. And uh, I don't think there was anything wrong with my parents making that rule. I think parents get to make rules like that, and they should; those rules should be enforced, too. Um, but uh, I, I remember making reference uh, to, in the classroom recently, making reference to a Simpsons episode, and one of the students said, oh, that show is bad. Mm. And again, if, if her parents make the rule that she can't watch Simpsons. I want to in, uh, reinforce that rule that she should honor her parents. But I, I wonder if passages like this here from verse 15 mean uh, you're not allowed to say that the Simpsons and watching it is in and of itself evil. That uh, yes, for uh, if your parents make that rule, then you can't, you can't watch them. But uh, if your parents let you, or or if you're an adult and you and you watch a, a TV show and enjoy it like that, um, you can thank God for whatever it is that you receive with the you know with prayer and the word of uh, with thanksgiving and and God's word. Um, that, that reminds me. Your your illustration of Simpsons reminds me of uh, years ago when my girls were a lot smaller and we had 
uh, video game system, and I, I went to GameStop looking for a used game to play with them. And I asked, well, what's a good game that we can all play together, you know, two, four players? And he said, well, how about SpongeBob SquarePants? And I said, my girls, I don't let my girls watch SpongeBob SquarePants. I've yeah. never seen an episode. And he, he just looked at me. He said, I've never heard anyone who didn't watch SpongeBob. <laughs> but same kind of thing. I just thought it was yeah. too crude for my little girls to be sure. watching. Sure, and and that's absolutely a good thing for parents to be discerning like that. But I guess I, what I'm thinking is, uh, well, when you have faith and you are mature in your faith, you can you can say, I, no, don't call SpongeBob pure, impure, or don't call The Simpsons impure, uh, in and of themselves, mm-hmm. watching it, uh, because all things are pure to the pure. Um, uh, you you can you can take the things in it that are sinful and sift them out uh, your 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 faith and your uh, uh christ in your heart actually kind of acts like a filter then for your soul and that as you're talking about that it reminded me of a controversy that i kind of dealt with back and when i was in kentucky that was when harry potter came out oh right yeah that's All a good books. example too and one of our members said oh that's that's wrong it's got witchcraft we shouldn't be right dealing with that right. at all and I said, all right, that's fair, but then you also can't let your kids watch any single Disney movie. Because yep. every yep. single Disney movie has witchcraft of some kind in it. Yes. Uh, you got to be careful with any kind of things. Now, we might say Dungeons and Dragons, because when I was in college, uh, one of my, you know, our dean of students said that's from the devil too. But I know pastors uh, that have played it, and it's just... a. Um, you know, they're not worshiping the devil because they're just taking what's good out of it of the, and I think some of our teenagers from our church play it because it's the role playing thing. It's using their mind and so forth. And so we have to be, we have to be consistent. Yeah. If they're going to say there's witchcraft in Harry Potter, then you need to take away all these other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's being driven by the law instead of by the gospel really is what what it's all about. Uh, chapters two and three of Titus, uh, you, you get a lot of Christmas readings from these. Uh, there, there's uh, quite a few Christmas epistles. Uh, in chapter two, you've got verse 11 and, uh, and following. In, uh, in chapter three, uh, you've got verse four, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, he saved us. Uh, but uh, that's another kind of theme in the second half of Titus chapters two and three is uh, the emphasis on Jesus' birth and Jesus' appearance in a lowly way uh, during his humiliation to save us uh, and then sort of foreshadowing his uh, second coming and his appearance to uh, redeem all of of the created world. And then also in chapter two, uh, Paul talks to Pastor Titus about there being a balance in the congregation. Uh, Encourage older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. He says, encourage older women to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not enslaved to too much wine. Encourage younger men to be self-controlled, pure, busy at home, kind, and so forth. And what I was thinking of there is, Blessed is a young pastor who has a group of these kinds of members in the congregation. You want to have balance. So, for example, in the way we set up Water of Life last year was uh, very different from other churches, I think, with their councils, is we wanted both a chairman and a vice chairman for every position, say like evangelism, trustees, uh, education and so forth. So the idea is maybe we'll have an older guy that's the chairman and then the vice chairman comes to the meetings when the uh, chairman can't make it. But the idea is uh, that the chairman, maybe an older person, is training the younger guy. Because otherwise what happens is you've got a guy that serves on the council and he might uh, have a three-year term and he re-ups for another three-year term and he's serving for six years and now you have to train someone brand new who's never done it. So the idea is, what I take from Paul's words here to Titus is, let's train up young men and women. So a, a neat thing like today, uh, after Bible study, we had one of the ladies in the church 
who runs the altar guild and was changing the altar cloths for Sunday as we celebrate Saints Triumphant. And then she had one of the younger ladies with her. And uh, they also then work on getting some of our teenage ladies. And so in that way, you're, you're training everyone in the ministry. Uh, you mentioned younger pastors and uh, having members like these surrounding him. Um, I one time used a verse from chapter two of, of Titus in a dev- opening devotion for at the first congregation I was at. Um, the ladies got a good chuckle out of it uh, because I sort of, it, it might have sounded at first like I was putting my foot in my mouth. I told them, uh, I thought that this verse would be especially fitting t- for you, uh, verse three, at this ladies' aid meeting, because it talks about the older women, and I, I, I saw it. You know, I, I was like, likewise, encourage older women, and uh, it, it was sort of like, uh, hey, wait a minute, what are you saying about our age, Pastor? <laughs> uh, that uh, the, the, but but this is this is I think one of the things that uh, is a good takeaway in our day and age uh, uh, from this chapter is that we all have different roles. And I think when you have so much talk about um, equity and equality and everybody being the same and everybody doing the same and everybody having the same, that um, it's, it's very counter to the picture that God paints for us here in Titus chapter 2, where there are all these different types of persons, and each of them have different types of roles and jobs. You have a, a work for the uh, for the older women to do, and you have a work for the younger men to do in verses 6 and following. Uh, you have the, the work uh, uh, or the uh, encouragement for the uh, slaves in verses 9 and 10. And, uh, and then it brings it all together in verse 11. Here's that, here's that Christmas verse for this chapter. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It trains us to reject ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Uh, and the, the literal translation for that is uh, reject. That word reject godliness is it teaches us to say no to godliness. Uh, ungod- I'm sorry ungodliness it teaches us to say no and uh not to sound too much like nancy reagan here but uh this is uh this 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 is a good habit to get into saying no this that is not that is not the the lifestyle that christ has called me to pursue and then paul wraps it up with verse 15 keep Telling people these things, continue to encourage and rebuke with full authority. Let no one ignore you. So, Jeremy, agree or disagree? In a society that makes heroes and models out of athletes, pastors can no longer be examples for young people. Uh, I do it every day in the classroom. So I, I, I think that's why, and this is really the... This is really what youth ministry is, is uh, you, you've got young people in your high school classroom uh, and you're, you're sharing Jesus with them and you're, and you're living out who Jesus is for them as best you can in your sinful, in your sinful way. Uh, yes, they, they absolutely do and can pay attention to you and uh, look at you as an example. Uh, and there are a couple of things. Yesterday, I walked into our middle school to teach my eighth grade catechism class, and one of our sixth graders from our church stopped me and said, Pastor, can you come next week? Uh, did the principal uh, ask you if you could be one of our test subjects? I said, for what? He said, we're going to test people on what disease they have. And uh, I said, well, next week, uh, I'll have the disease of getting a year older. Uh, and being closer to death. And he said, well, that's not it. But I just thought it was kind of a neat thing that he wanted his pastor there. Hmm. Uh, And I think, too, sometimes when things aren't going well in a church, and then people will look at what the pastor is doing, which is fine, but they say, well, maybe the pastor shouldn't be doing that, this or that. And I had questions in the past because I did a lot of soccer coaching over the years and in our grade school. And now that I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm roughing and people can say, why is he doing those things when he should be spending more time doing pastor stuff? And then I quote to them, one of our dads who said to me after a game, 
you know, it is really good for our young ch- students to see their pastor outside of the role of a pastor inside the church, just seeing him as a normal guy mm-hmm. and then inspiring them. And it's kind of funny, like when I ref, the kids on, on both teams, both our DWS and the other schools, they know I'm a pastor because a lot of them come to the camp I run and they don't say, hey, ref, they say pastor, hmm. you know, with respect. And, you know, that's kind of a neat thing. And then we can just talk about other things as well. It doesn't have to be church stuff, pastor stuff. And that role that you and I have, me with the younger kids, you with the teenagers. Uh I wonder if anybody listening uh, was at uh, Pacer Palooza this past uh, homecoming season uh, at Shoreland. Did, you, you didn't. You didn't go to that. I have never been to Pacer Palooza. Okay. Well, I uh, actually sort of was compelled, but ended up. Yeah, I suppose you could say volunteering to go up on stage in front of the whole student body, and I found out many of their parents were watching. Uh, for a contest of uh, stomping balloons that you had a balloon tied around your ankle and the contest was you stomp any everybody else's and try to keep yours from being stomped and whoever had the last balloon was the winner uh, and uh, in the midst of stomping on somebody else's balloon I actually ended up falling flat on my back oh. and also knocking and breaking the uh, sophomore flat behind me oh, no. uh, and so there, there's a good example. I think that's even uh, less noble than uh, coaching or refing a soccer game. Uh, so there you go. Um, chapter 3 uh, has the uh, another reference to Jesus' birth and, and Christmas uh, and also baptism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really paints a very clear picture of what all human beings are like. I'm sure it was especially pointed if you would see people living on Crete and uh, think, wow, those people are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, uh, uh, living in malice, being hated and hating one another. That that sounds like everybody, uh, but it probably especially sounded like people on Crete. Uh, and then you have this uh, twist and turn of the gospel in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, he saved us not by righteous works that we did ourselves, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Uh, And those words probably sound familiar since they, uh, Luther picked them as one of the proof passages in the small catechism for baptism. And uh, when I, I have a sermon that I have preached a lot recently on this text about baptism, and I make the point in the sermon uh, that Paul never actually mentions baptism specifically. Uh, so, uh, what if somebody wanted to say, "Well, this isn't this doesn't tell you that baptism saves you," because he doesn't even say the word baptism. Uh, do, I have a response, so I can bail you out if you need it. But uh, what would your response to that be? Well, isn't the Greek for washing baptizo there? Yes, but that word is not in this okay. uh, original context at all. Okay, but yeah, just the whole idea. What else is he talking about? That's the way I would go with it. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. And I remember once in my adult catechism class, uh, someone getting upset. He actually physically got up and... Uh, came over by where I was sitting. He said, you cannot show me anywhere in the Bible that baptism saves. Oh, and then I said, oh, he saved us. So the washing of rebirth, it's right there. It it saved us. And how it's rebirth that we were born dead in sin. And now like Lazarus, we are reborn out of the grave and a renewal by the Holy Spirit that we are different than what we once were. We're no longer living for ourselves. We have a new life living for the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that's because of our baptism. And uh, I have to start writing a funeral sermon for tomorrow for Bill Temke, who, by God's grace, was 98, uh, baptized a few months after uh, after he was born. And what I'll point out in the sermon is that uh, Jesus was in the life of Bill. Uh, through his baptism, through his confirmation, through his wedding, you know, he's been a member of this congregation 
for almost his entire life. In fact, his uncle started the congregation. He lived across the street from the church. I think might, that might be why the church was built where it was. Mm. I'm not sure. But, uh, and then Bill's uh, wife, her family donated the five windows that are in the back of the church. Mm. They're all relatives. But So he is very involved in the church. But why? Because Christ was involved in his life from his baptism. Uh, and so what I really point out in the sermon is, uh, I'm not going to tell the, light, the story of Bill. I'm going to tell the story of Jesus in the life of Bill. And that begins with his rebirth and his renewal at baptism. Hmm. Sounds good. So what were you gonna what do you say then if people say that it's well, not about baptism? I have the advantage of having done a, a little bit of a, a text study on this, and what I found was that uh when it that the word the word is washing, uh and that's that's it, it like I said, it's not the baptizo word okay. in Greek, but it is a word for washing. And every other time in the New Testament when this word for washing is used, it always means a physical water touching a human body. Uh, It's uh, like Tabitha uh, having her uh, after the, after she died, they washed her body. Well, it's not, that's not a a symbolic washing that they did of the dead body. They did an actual washing of the dead body. So there's always a physical water being put on. And, and your, your argument is, is just as strong really to say um, what other washing are you talking about? You have to. You end up having to make up a washing that was some kind of custom in the New Testament church that is not the that is not the tradition of baptism, and uh, when you do that, you you end up making up something that isn't in the Bible at all. Uh, so yes, this is talking about baptism, and it's telling us that baptism saves you. And as you kept talking about washing, the, the imagery that came to my mind was back in high school when we were in 4-H. We had a, an exchange student from Kansas, and you know, you got to watch out for people from Kansas. Yeah, she talked a little bit differently than we did, uh, and one of the things was uh, she could not say wash. You know, she could say other words that rhymed with wash, and then we would say those. Uh, say, well, say this word, say that word, and she say that, and then say, all right, say wash, and it'd be wash. <laughs> yeah. She yeah. could not say wash; it was always wash. But there you go. So, but it's not washing of rebirth it's washing that's right Uh, and then uh, do you want to get into anything with the heretical person of warning a heretical person uh, versus verse 10 Uh, it it seems like um, I mean first of all it it speaks to that whole process of church discipline that I think uh, we don't make nearly enough use of in in modern American Christianity that uh, it was a pretty big deal in Jesus mind that there would be uh, a warning people and telling them you are cut off from from me if you continue in this sin uh, uh, go to your brother one on one go to your sister uh with other other witnesses and then finally turn it over to the church and then excommunicate um now that's not a biblical word excommunicate but that's you still got the strength and power b- behind that biblical word or that unbiblical word uh, it's a Christian word, and you see something similar when it says reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. I will say, does this seem like to you maybe this is talking more so about somebody who's presuming to take the role of a teacher as opposed to just a general believer? Yeah, and, and I think we've had those conversations before when it's come to the doctrine of fellowship in our high school and, and things like that of... This is not talking about a student, I think, that is learning God's word and may be argumentative because he or she is from another church. Sure. This is talking about, like you said, a teacher. And it's not a a prescription. All right, I warned them twice. Now I don't have anything to do with them. Yeah. That's yeah. not what we're talking about is we keep on reaching out until we, we figure out in our own minds, and you and I may even disagree when uh, when enough is enough, when Jesus says, don't cast my pearls, my gospel before swine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we've said, when that person said, I don't want to hear it anymore. And then we finally say, all right, I'll go and take the gospel elsewhere. And what I want to point out here is what I said earlier too. 
It's not enough for us to avoid false teaching, just pull us and our children away from that. Uh, we must actively oppose false teaching because any false teaching uh, is going to be disruptive. Uh, and there, there I think of maybe you've got this in your workplace. Uh, maybe you've got this in your school if you're a public school teacher and you're told you, you must call a student if he or she wants to be uh, called by a different pronoun, a different name, a different sex, and what do you do? Do you go along with it because you need to keep your job, but then you, what you're doing is you're, pro- you're promoting a lie, a mm-hmm. lie, and all lies come from the devil. That's a false teaching. Uh, even though it's in our culture and then our culture would like to say, well, that's political. No, that's cultural. That's Christian. Or, you know, that's, that's in, our, uh, in our purview as Christians. We need to take everything back and not allow it to be, become political. It is, first of all, if it's cultural, it deals with us. Mm-hmm. And we can't just say, well, that's over there because it is. It, affects even our students. I had a student recently that I talked to a teacher. This is a young student that said, uh, in, in reaction to a boy who called her a girl and she said, and this is a middle schooler saying, I'm not a girl, I'm pansexual. <laughs> well, that's a student that's not picking that up on the news, you know, not reading it and so forth. That's someone that's involved in TikTok and Snapchat and things like that and getting caught up with the lies of the world. And so what I'm saying is we need as parents, as members of the church called workers to be able to go out. Again, it's not a cultural thing. It's, or well, it is a cultural thing. So it's not a political thing that belongs to us. And we need to call that out and reject that. I've, I've said everything I okay. want to say. I just wanted to wrap up then with uh, verses 12 and 13, where it talks about, uh, Paul says, Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus, Apollos, and I was kind of disappointed you didn't use the name Zenus mm. today. It was right there for you. I will add it to my list. There you go. Uh, but these people, uh, you know, only Artemis and Zenus are mentioned here. Tychicus is mentioned in several other books. Apollos played a major role in mission work in Ephesus and Corinth. And when I read those names of working with Paul and Timothy and Titus on mission work, I'm thinking of the different mission opportunities we have in our southeast Wisconsin district. As the chairman for our district mission board, uh, we just had a meeting the other night talking about four opportunities that we want to be bringing to the board for missions this spring. Uh, two of maybe having pastors in our schools nearby to be able to reach the uh, unchurched families in those schools. And then one in northern Indiana of a brand new church, a second site. And then one another brand new church, starting with only one family that we have in that area, in the Indianapolis area. But these are fantastic mission opportunities. And then these pastors can be involved in that, much like these men were. Uh, next, we'll complete Paul's pastoral epistles. We're going to go through the four chapters of 2 Timothy. So we're kind of going off a little different than what Pastor Hagen had laid out for us, but we wanted to cover these pastoral epistles before we get into the book of Hebrews. So in honor of the sequel of Ghostbusters coming out, this is Pastor Zarling with Peter Venkman. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs> 